Well, good morning. It's great to see you here this morning. Um, just one other thing we wanted to mention before I dive into things is that, um, sadly, this morning is uh, Wendy's uh, last Sunday with us for a while. Uh, the re- I know. Um, the reason being uh, is that we're going to be sending Wendy off to a church in Oklahoma to go and bless them for eight weeks. So... Um, our, our loss is very much their gain, and uh, Wendy's a blessing not just to this church, but to the churches uh, in other nations too. And so we'd love to send her with our best prayers. And so a bunch of us are going to gather down the front here. Um, if you know Wendy, you're close to Wendy, or you've just seen Wendy once, doesn't matter. Come down the front and pray for her. And please do be praying for her while she's away as well. Um, and please do send her English chocolate, um, because the American stuff just isn't, isn't the same. That's right, isn't it, Wendy? So, so let's be doing that at the end, all right? Okay, well, I hope you're doing really well. Um, of course, today is Valentine's Day, and um, in the run-up to Valentine's Day, my kids have been uh, talking, uh, apparently one of the conversations in school at the moment is to find out who can hear the cheesiest chat-up line there is going. And so I thought I would bless you this morning as a nod to Valentine's Day um, with five, I think, of the top contenders for cheesiest chat-up line. And you can grade them from Edam to full-on Stilton as you hear them, all right? So, so here, are the, here are the top five. Um, here's number five. Um, is your name Google? Because I've been searching for you everywhere. <laughs> they, they get worse. Um, Number four, what you do is you pull out your phone and you say, can you help me? There seems to be a problem with my phone because it doesn't have your number on it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Smooth. (laughs) Number three is this. Um, Your hand looks really heavy. Can I hold it for you? (laughs) Yes, quite. Uh, Number two, you're looking a little pale. I think you're suffering from lack of vitamin me. (laughs) Who thinks up these things? And and number one, do you know what this shirt is made from? Boyfriend material, yeah. (laughs) Love them, so um, I just thought I'd bless you with that. You you cannot unhear those, can you? So... I might regret starting with that. Um, Well, um, if you're new here, um, last week uh, Simon spoke to us about becoming oaks of righteousness, and it was a key talk for us, really talking really about where we're headed as a church and what we're going after. So if you missed it last week, do grab hold of it. Just to let you know as well what's coming up in the months ahead, uh, after Easter, I'm really excited because we're starting a new series uh, on the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament, and we're going to be working through that chapter by chapter and just systematically seeing what God's got to say to us. So look out for that after Easter. But between now and Easter, we're going to be starting a new series, and uh, we're going to be looking at uh, becoming culture changers. So looking at cultures that change the world around us. If you're a regular to the King's Arms, you'll know that we've spent a bit of time looking at what kind of culture we want to have here as a church. We've spent a bit of time on that, and I'm sure we will in the future. But rather what we want to do in this series is look at the biblical beliefs that underpin some of the values that we hold, and therefore look at how we can extend that kingdom culture to the world around us. And this morning's interview was just a classic example of how that might work out. And I'm going to start this morning because I've been given the title, Shame is Broken, Therefore We Can Live with Authenticity. Shame is Broken, Therefore We Can Live with Authenticity. And I have to say that as I look back through the King's Arms back catalogue, I don't know that we've ever spoken about the subject of shame. 
So this morning is long overdue, and that's what we're going to be addressing. Um, And the way I want to approach it is really by telling you two stories. One story which I think highlights something of the problem, and then turning to the Bible to look at another story that gives us something of the solution. So that's what we're going to be doing today. And I guess all of us would know shame to some degree or other. For some of us, we've experienced crippling shame. For others of us, it takes more the form of mild embarrassment. And so I thought we'd start out by looking at how much of an issue shame is likely to be. Uh, To try on a scenario, if you like, for size, and then see how you would grade it from 1 to 10 on your cringeometer. Is that all right? So um, uh, it's a true story from my life, which sadly seems to provide a wealth of material uh, for embarrassing episodes. Uh, So I could have told you, for instance, about the time during my degree graduation ceremony when I was announced on stage in front of 2,000 people as... Miss Paula Johnson. Um, that, that was a bad moment. But instead, I'm going to tell you, start out with a different story. Here's story number one. Some of you may remember me saying that a number of years back, before Emma and I had kids, we had a team over visiting the church uh, from the States, and uh, Ems and I were asked to give a lift to a couple of lads who were on the team and give them a lift from one side of Bedford to the other. And uh, during the course of the car journey, um, we just sort of casually got chatting, and I asked them what part of the States they were from. And uh, one of the lads said, oh, well, we're we're from Oklahoma. And to be honest, eager to impress these lads and look a little bit cool, I remembered that I'd heard about a pastor with an unusual name from Oklahoma in the States. And so I said to these lads in the back of the car, I said, oh, you'll never guess what, I heard about this pastor from Oklahoma who had the weirdest name. This guy's name was Rock Bottomley. That was his actual name. This guy's name was Rock Bottomley. Can you imagine? Imagine living your life with a name Rock Bottomley. I mean, what were the parents thinking? Naming their child Rock Bottomley to be saddled with that for the rest of your life. Isn't that hilarious? And then I just turned to them and I said, guys, I don't suppose either of you have ever heard of Rock Bottomley, have you? And there was this pause. And then a voice from the back said, yeah, I have actually because he's my dad. (laughs) It's years, it's years ago now, but the pain is still fresh. Do you know what I mean? I had Rock Bottomley's son in my car, and I was criticizing his father and grandparents. And then what normally happens, because this happens frequently, is I turn to my wife to bail me out. I want her social skills to help me. So I looked across to her, and she was sat in the passenger seat. I kid you not, she was doubled bent over in the front seat. Her whole body was rocking as she fought to keep in the laughter. She turned her head to me and tears are streaming down her face. And I thought to myself, I'm on my own here. This is it. I just like, you know. So I drove as fast as I could and dropped these guys off. I wonder, where would that feature on your cringeometer? Because for me, that's like a 12, all right? So... Where would that be for you? Because if you think about it, I mean, this thing of embarrassment and humiliation and all of that, it happens on different levels for us, doesn't it? You know, some things, it might be like a minor kind of social mistake, a bit of a faux pas. Well, we'd say say that's sort of embarrassing, wouldn't you? Moments like that. uh, You know, you might, for instance, I don't know, point to a lady's stomach and say, oh, congratulations, when's the baby due? And she says, I'm not pregnant. You know, you have those sort of moments where it's, it's not actually wrong or illegal, but it's a foolish, it's a dumb thing to say. That's embarrassing. 
But then if you like further down, worse than that, below that, you have guilt, don't you? It's where you have actually done something wrong. You know, maybe you, you've done something illegal or immoral. You've been selfish. You've been unfaithful. You've been unkind. You've acted with only your interests at heart. And you've crossed a legal or a moral boundary. I would say guilt is even harder to bear than embarrassment, wouldn't you? I remember praying with a guy who realized that um, he needed to go and confess to the police for a crime that he had committed four or five years ago. I remember sat praying with him as we unpacked this and praying for courage and the ability to be really honest when he went into the police station. And there was this deep anguish in his heart as we prayed together. Guilt is a terrible thing to live with, where you realize I've done something wrong and need to make amends. But I suggest to you that even past guilt, there's another level down, where we realize it's not just that we've done bad things, but rather that we are a bad person. That we've become so seeped in bad stuff, either stuff that we've done or even others have done to us, that we realize it cannot be separated from who we are. A bit like if you're making a, a batch of dough and you pour in some red food coloring as you stir it around, sooner or later, everything is red. It's seeped into the very core of who we are. And we call that position shame. Where it's not just that I've done bad things, but I am a bad person. It's at the very deepest level. I remember hearing recently, uh, any of you remember Monica Lewinsky and that, all that business in the late 1990s? Uh, well, for those of you who don't know, so Monica Lewinsky was an aide to President Clinton, fell in love with him, and then very, very publicly the whole affair was exposed. And she said this in a recent TED talk, and the context was there'd been some secret tape recordings that were then brought out to a Congressional Affairs Committee as they looked into the whole incident. And she said this on hearing those tapes. She said, scared and mortified, I listen. Listen as I confess my love for the president. And of course, my heartbreak. Listen to my sometimes catty, sometimes silly self being cruel, unforgiving, uncouth. Listen deeply, deeply ashamed to the worst version of myself, a self I don't even recognize. I'd suggest to you that that's a situation that has gone way beyond embarrassment, way beyond guilt, into deep, deep shame. It's that awareness that we are utterly inadequate, falling short and unworthy of acceptance, and we just want to hide away. We just want the ground to swallow us up. Shame is rooted in a fear of rejection. That's where it comes from. It's this belief that we deserve to be pushed away, to be cast out. And what sometimes happens is that we end up living from a place of shame. Think of it like this. Up here on the flip chart, you've got these different levels of shame. Um, on the top, if I can get the paper up, on the top is embarrassment. So maybe a social faux pas, you've done something foolish or silly. Further down is guilt, where we realize it's something I've done. Shame is where we realize I am fundamentally bad. What happens when we live from a place of shame is that we might only have a minor embarrassing incident, 
But the emotions we feel are far deeper than the situation actually warrants. Do you know what I mean? Where, where it's only a silly little thing, but we beat ourselves up over what's happening. What's going on there? Well, the embarrassment is reinforcing the shame that we really feel. The embarrassment is connecting with how we really feel about ourselves. So when I made that stupid remark in the car, I, I felt that for weeks and months afterwards. Why? Because it triggered with my identity from shame. And maybe you found the same thing happening for you. It's this idea that people will see who I really am and then they'll push me away. Then they'll realize how unworthy and unacceptable I am. So we protect ourselves about ever from ever feeling deep shame or even embarrassment. We guard ourselves. We protect ourselves and manage the situations that we get into, which means that we won't do things that are outside of our comfort zone for fear of embarrassment, and it constrains us. We don't want to be seen as incompetent or foolish or weak. So we wouldn't ever sing at a karaoke event. We wouldn't talk from a microphone. We wouldn't raise our hand in class. We wouldn't ask for, for a promotion or tell someone we love them. Why? Because to do so is to risk exposure. So we play it safe. Is this ringing any bells? Well, the bad news, as if it couldn't get any worse, the bad news is that you and I are inadequate when compared to God. Sure, you might be a nice person, you might give money to charity, and you wouldn't dare tease someone because their name was Rock Bottomley. But when you look at it, have you ever held a brand new white shirt up against another white shirt that you've had for some time? The old shirt doesn't look so clean anymore, does it? When we're held up alongside a perfect, pure, holy God, our dirt is all too evident. Romans 3.23 says this, everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Sometimes we try and cover up for it. We try and fake it. We try and pretend that we're someone different to who we are. We have this real us, and then we have the image that we'd like to project. So on a Sunday, you may not wear the fancy clothes, but you come with your Sunday best image on. Psychologists call these two images the ideal self and then the actual self, who you really are. Lewis Smees, in his book on shame, says there are certain internal conversations many of us will have about ourselves which reveal where we're really at, the real us, the actual self. And we might be able to identify with statements like this. He says, sometimes we'll feel as if we're a fake or a hypocrite. When I look inside myself, I seldom feel any joy at where I am or who I have become. Everyone else around me seems so together. I feel flawed on the inside, blemished, dirty sometimes. Most of us, if we're honest, can identify with at least one of those statements. So that's something of the problem. We feel permeated with shame. The question then becomes, how do I go about changing? How do I move on from this place where I find myself? Well, that's where story number two comes in. You'll find it in Luke chapter 7. In a moment, we're going to look at some words from Jesus. But first of all, let me just set the scene for you. A Pharisee named Simon has invited Jesus to his home for an evening dinner party, which on the face of it seems like a really hospitable thing to do. 
But before we rush off and give him an orange T-shirt and put him on the welcome team, we need to look a bit deeper and see what's going on in his mind. You see, uh, in those days, it was customary, if someone came to your home, you would greet them with a kiss. If it was someone of a higher social standing than you, you would kiss their hand, a little bit like people will kiss the hand of the Pope. If it was someone of an equal standard to you, then you would go and kiss them on the cheek. The Pharisee doesn't kiss Jesus at all. There's no greeting. It would be a little bit like you go to someone's house for dinner and they're all just sat on the sofa watching TV and nobody gets up. It would be that kind of impression. Not only that, but the custom was for guests to have their feet washed. There was a practical reason for this. If you think about it, in those days they were traveling on dusty, dirty roads that would be covered with animal dung. And in this hot climate, that was a basic provision of care for people. Um, And so Jesus arrives at this house having worn open-toed sandals, and he needs his feet washed. Incidentally, please note, sandals without socks. Sandals with socks was a later heresy that came into the church, which is a terrible, terrible thing, and you need to repent. Um, So Jesus is there, and he needs his feet washed. The other thing you do to welcome guests, some of you are just deep conviction. Um, so the other thing Jesus needed, when, you, when you'd arrive at someone's house, um, obviously it's a hot climate, um, there would generally be some salve, some ointment, like a perfume. Uh, if you can imagine, there's no deodorant, you know, we're a few centuries off of Lynx Africa being invented. So you give them some ointment, something like that, to help them smell a bit better. Jesus arrives at the Pharisee's house and receives nothing. Nothing at all. Everyone knows that Jesus has been treated rudely, a bit like a public slap in the face. And that's the context. So the disciples are shown into the dining area. Probably it was a large courtyard area that would have been lit with blazing torches and with a low table in the middle. They wouldn't sit at dining room chairs as we would know it, but rather the men would recline on couches with the low table in the middle and their feet pointing outwards like the spokes of a wheel. This is the scene when a woman arrives at the house. Now, as a woman in that society, she would have had few rights, very often not much better than a servant or a slave. But this isn't just any woman. She's referred to as an immoral woman or a sinful woman. All the commentators agree this is just a polite way of saying that she's a prostitute. At the very least, a highly promiscuous woman. They would say that she's cheapened herself. Now, I've been a pastor long enough to know that where women end up in multiple promiscuous relationships or selling themselves to guys, the chances, is that, chances are that they've suffered greatly. In my experience, very often in childhood. You might say they have cheapened themselves, but in all likelihood, somebody else cheapened them long before. And in this society, she's considered tarnished goods, dirty and defiled. For this woman, her shame comes from her sexual past. Many of us, if we're honest in this room, could identify with that, myself included. But the truth is there are many different sources. For some of us, our shame comes from our failed relationship, our poor education, our inability to find a job, or the children we neglected. For some of us, our shame comes from the sense that we weren't good enough for somebody to want to marry us. It takes root in so many different ways. I guess I'd want to gently ask you this morning, where does your shame come from? 
Where's the root of your shame? Because if you can identify that, then you can begin to move forward. It's the first step to getting free from it. So there she stands, this sinful woman, at the threshold of the Pharisee's house. There are a million reasons why she shouldn't go in. And yet, she's drawn to Jesus. She longs just to be near to him. And in a sense, she's a bit like us. If you're new here, it's worth you knowing that the King's Arms isn't some prestigious, exclusive, religious country club. We're a bunch of people who've made mistakes. We're a bunch of people who've messed up in the past. We didn't all grow up in Ned Flanders' home. Some of us, myself included, have a past. We've done things, said things, looked at things, and been at places that we're not proud about. And yet, like this woman, we're drawn to Jesus. So she steps across the threshold. And she sees in the courtyard there, at the bottom of the table, not in the place of honor, is Jesus. Maybe for a minute or two, she just watches, planning out what she's going to do next, trying to summon up the courage for what she's about to do. She pulls the hood of her cloak over her head and makes her way around the edges of the room, using the shadows for cover, until she gets as close as she can without being seen. Her eyes scan the room, and she pauses, trying to pick her moment. Simon the Pharisee, maybe he begins a long story about his pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and his voice is loud and haughty in the night air. Whilst all eyes are on him, she seizes her moment. Face down, she breaks cover and steps out into the light. At first she goes unseen until halfway across the room, the conversation suddenly ends abruptly. She's forced to make the final few yards across a silent room. Every hostile eye is focused on her. What is she doing here? Who does she think she is? She doesn't belong here. You don't gate crash a Pharisee's dinner party. Definitely if you're an unholy woman amongst holy men. Feeling everyone's eyes burning into her, she kneels on the cold tiles at Jesus' feet, clutching the little alabaster jar she's brought with him. The plan had been to anoint his feet with the ointment, but kneeling there, Close up to Jesus, something unanticipated happens. It's like the weight of her life suddenly catches up with her. All of the sin and the shame that she's carried over the years is suddenly brought to the surface, and she begins to cry. Not a polite little Christian weep that you dab away with a tissue. This is deep, heartfelt sobs as it all comes gushing out. So much so that Jesus' feet are are wet, not from the ointment, but from her tears. And she looks down. This isn't the way she thought it would be. This is unexpected. And so she thinks, what can I do? And she does the only thing she can think to do. And she lets down her hair. And she uses her hair to dab away at the tears, using her hair to wash his feet. And then in between the sobs, she breaks the seal on the little alabaster jar. And rather than pouring out this expensive perfume gradually... She just upends the whole thing all over Jesus' feet. And the room is full of the pungent fragrance of the perfume. It's this glorious, unscripted, irreligious, lavish 
socially unacceptable act of devotion just poured out over Jesus, just like the perfumes poured out. I tell you, this first century, uneducated, probably illiterate prostitute gives us a masterclass in how to deal with shame. Her secret is simply this. She makes herself utterly vulnerable to God. She just pours the whole lot out. She makes this massive leap of faith. She's, pro- she's trusting that broken, messed up, and dirty as she is, Jesus will accept her. Simon the Pharisee wants Jesus to see the religious veneer. He wants to see the mask that he's projecting. Instead, this woman drops every pretense and every defense in order that Jesus might know the real her. You see, shame lives in the shadows. Even the very word shame means to cover up. Adam and Eve hid from God, and we've been hiding ever since. But this woman is willing to take a risk on Jesus, willing to take a risk of taking her shame to him. You know, I wonder what cost her more. Was it the perfume or her humility? The big gamble is, will Jesus accept me as I really am? Warts and all. There's no excuse there. It's just an honest admission. This is me with all the mess. Let me ask you this morning, do you need to drop some masks? I lived too many years as a Christian trying to give the right image. I'll tell you, it was exhausting. It's so hard trying to keep up that image. Is this morning the time, is it the place to start dropping some masks and be who you really are? Maintaining an image is so tiring. So she just comes to him and lays it all out there. And then Jesus does the rest. She gives, her him, gives him herself, just all that she is, and then Jesus steps in. Notice the first thing that Jesus does is he protects her. The Pharisee looks down at the table And uh, I would imagine cynically and sneeringly says, if Jesus were a real prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this is. His voice kind of just dripping with judgment. And then Jesus starts to talk to Simon. We pick it up in verse 40. Jesus answers Simon and says this, Simon, I have something to say to you. Uh Uh-oh. He answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose, the, the one I suppose for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. I imagine at that moment, Simon's thinking, oh, great, I've judged rightly. Done well there. It's all about to turn. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. You see, the Pharisee wants to humiliate her and expose Jesus to boot. So Jesus tells a story about how the happiest people are the ones who have been forgiven the most. And then he shames the man who's trying to shame her. Don't you love that? He effectively says, tonight, Simon, you're the one who's acted shamefully, not her. I'd love to have seen Simon's face in that moment. Jesus says, right back at you, mate. Her accuser now stands accused himself. Jesus is effectively saying, back off, she's with me. 
Just like he did with the woman caught in adultery, Jesus protects those who are despised and rejected. That's the nature and character of Jesus. 2 Samuel talks about God as our stronghold and refuge. This woman has discovered that the Lord protects those he loves. And you can rely on him to protect you too. You know, being a Christian is about trusting Jesus with everything, including your reputation. And having protected her, Jesus then goes on to meet her other needs. He deals with her guilt. Verse 47, he says this, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, because he knows, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And then I imagine with great tenderness he says to her, Your sins are forgiven. In that one brief statement, he changes her life. She comes to him, this mess of sin and and all the things she's committed and all the things that have been committed against her, and he declares her righteous. He declares that she is forgiven publicly. How on earth can he do that? Well, he can do that because he's about to go and die for all the sins that she's committed. Every single way that she's offended God, every single thing that she has done wrong, Jesus is about to die for. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In a short while, he's going to carry her sins with him to the cross. He's going to be humiliated. He's going to hang there naked and exposed. He's going to be burdened with her sins so that she can be set free. And I tell you, it won't be the nails that kill him. It'll be the weight of her sin that takes his life. He's going to wipe her slate clean at his own expense. He deals with her guilt, and in just the same way, he deals with yours and mine. But the good news is it doesn't end there. Because he doesn't just deal with the guilt, he then deals with her shame. Verse 50 says this, And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word peace here is the Greek word irene. It's not shalom. It's a different word for peace, irene, which means peace, safety, and security. It was this word that was used of protecting Israel's borders. In other words, it talks of security. He's saying, go, woman, and be secure in my love for you. Be secure in my acceptance of you. In other words, you can leave here at peace, one with God and me, knowing that I accept you. Jesus has dealt with your guilt. He's declared that all the things you've done, you've done wrong are now forgiven. But he's also dealt with your shame. He declares you acceptable in his right. He wants you. He declares you acceptable in his sight. One of my favorite verses from the New Testament is Colossians 3.12. It says this, that we are now God's chosen people, holy, that's guilt-free, and dearly loved. That's accepted. That's who you now are. You are holy and dearly loved. Sometimes when I go to bed at night, that's the verse that I have in my head. I remind myself that I'm dearly loved by my Father. That has got to be good news for our lives, people. The cross has done it all, and your identity is no longer rejection. Just in the time remaining, why don't we just look at some of the implications for this? of this, because they are massive for our lives. Three quick implications for us. Number one is that now leaves us with a choice. You know, in this story, you can either be the Pharisee or you can be the woman. You can be the Pharisee and 
Spend your life trying to protect and project an image. Try to be good enough, put up a facade, pretend you know more than you do, come across as competent and capable. You can build a house of cards and then seek to live in it. Or you can be this woman and just lay it all out at Jesus' feet, the whole stinking lot, to say, this is who I am. We have a choice. I remember the first uh, short while after I came to King's Arms, first weekend away I had with some friends, uh, I, I got the chance to chat to a guy who was in leadership who I respected and trusted, and I'd realized that the King's Arms was a place where I could properly be real. And so I remember asking to get some time with him, and we were in this big old house, and we found a room that we could hide away in and um, shut the door and had these two big wing-back chairs that we sat opposite one another. And I took the plunge and for the first time told someone everything. All the shameful stuff from my past, all the secret thought life stuff and the addiction and the sexual stuff that I was, I was into. I told him the whole lot. By the end of the conversation, my nice shirt was stuck to the back of the wing-back chair. But I tell you, I left that room lighter. I chose in that moment to follow the example of this woman and give up a life of being a Pharisee. The second implication I'd suggest to you is that our embarrassment no longer needs to crush us because bottom line, we're accepted. That means I can try new things, I can have a go at things, I can appear foolish, but it doesn't change who I am. I'm not vulnerable in the way that I used to be. Don't get me wrong, I'm a work in process. But it means that embarrassment no longer has to mortify you and dog you for years. It no longer needs to damage your identity in the same way. Because as John says, perfect love has driven out fear. And then lastly, the last implication I suggest is that we can live with this cultural value of authenticity. Because we're at peace with the God of the universe... So my security doesn't depend on your acceptance of me any longer. Don't get me wrong, I value your opinion, but I value his more. So even if the whole world rejects me, and that is horribly painful, at the end of the day, I still have a friend in high places. I have a father who accepts me and is going to love me for eternity. Little example as we close. Um, Shortly... After Phil moved here down from Newcastle about five or six years ago now, um, I had some uh, memories come up from my past and some thought life stuff around sexual sin that I needed to confess to someone. And uh, normally what I've done is I've said to Simon, look, can I grab 10 minutes of your time? And then we'd be an hour and a half um, as I went through stuff. But this time I said to Simon and Phil, can I talk to both of you? The reason being is that I wanted to develop a friendship with Phil. And so I wanted him to know who I really am warts and all. So I took a risk, I took a leap, and I let them both know. I just confessed to the two of them everything that was going on and stuff from many years back. To be honest, I I hope that Phil would forget about that conversation, but it turns out you remember it really clearly, don't you, Phil? So (laughs) that wasn't part of the plan. Uh, But I guess the way I see it is this, is if you haven't told someone something they can use against you, then you haven't really trusted them with anything, have you? And at the end of the day, shame will isolate us, but authenticity will connect us. That's why we have a cultural value of authenticity, because it's powerful, people. You see, vulnerability isn't weakness. Vulnerability isn't weakness. Instead, it is contagious courage. 
Because your willingness to be authentic and vulnerable with somebody else then gives them the permission to be honest about the mess from their lives. And all of a sudden, things begin to change. And I suggest to you that in a world of airbrushing, image management, marketing spin, and Facebook photos that look nothing like people do in real life, we could do with a dose of authenticity. We want a culture of authenticity here because Jesus has conquered not just sin and death, but the very, very deepest shame of your life. We're... And the net result is this, is that we're now children of acceptance, not orphans of shame. And that can change the world. Why don't we pray together? Do you want to stand to your feet?